In the 1970s, my dad was a police officer in rural Saskatchewan. One night, while out on patrol, he saw a car swerving on the road and he pulled it over. When he walked up to the window, he recognized the man behind the wheel. As being one of the priests that, and he said, one of the priests that abused him in residential school. And he ended up taking him out of the vehicle and, and beating the shit out of him. That's investigative journalist Connie Walker talking with her brother Hal in an excerpt from her new Spotify podcast, Stolen, Surviving St. Michael's, her own family story about the impact of residential schools. She's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to all you explorers out there. I'm your host, David McGuffin. Before we get to our guest, a reminder that you can support great independent journalism in Canada by taking out a subscription to Canadian Geographic magazine. For just $28.50 a year, you get full digital access and six print issues packed with fascinating, award-winning articles, photo essays, and maps about Canada, its land, people, environment, wildlife, culture, and much more. So please subscribe by going to cangeo.ca forward slash subscribe. You'll be glad that you did. And now on to our guest. Connie Walker is quite simply one of Canada's best investigative journalists. Over her award-winning career, she spent years exposing the systemic abuse of Indigenous people in Canada, especially women and children. First with CBC, including her Missing and Murdered series, and now with Gimlet Media, where her latest podcast series takes on a very personal subject. Stolen, Surviving St. Michael's, is the story of her father, the abuse he received from a Catholic priest at St. Michael's Residential School in Saskatchewan. And at the heart of the series is this question from a St. Michael's Residential School survivor she interviewed for the podcast. Who has been held accountable for the things that they have done to us? Nobody. And I want to provide a trigger warning. This conversation includes details about the abuse of children and may not be appropriate for all listeners. Connie Walker, welcome to the Explore podcast. Thank you so much for having me. That's great to have you here. So in the intro, we played a clip of you and your brother talking about that moment when your, your father, a police officer, pulled over what turned out to be the priest who abused him. And, and beat him up. And I'm just wondering what your reaction was the first time you heard about that moment. Well, the first time I, I heard that story, I actually read it in a post that Hal shared on Facebook. And so I just, you know, I remember scrolling through and, um, and, and just feeling sick reading it, honestly. Uh, you know, Hal shared it a couple of weeks after um, the news broke about Kamloops last year and the discovery of the unmarked graves of the kids who who went to school there. And I think that was such a that was such a a, a raw and painful time for so many um, survivors mm-hmm. um, and intergenerational survivors. You know, I, I feel like even for me, um, as somebody who's been immersed in this work for a really long time and, you know, I, I certainly am very familiar with residential schools and I've reported on residential schools and I've reported on kind of the impacts of residential schools on our families and communities for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was something different about Kamloops and, and, and the kind of um, 
I think the way that people stop to pay attention to that, and for the first time, many acknowledge this painful reality that so many Indigenous families uh, experienced in residential schools was um, was really difficult, you know. And and so I think after in the week days and weeks following Kamloops, like survivors, I think because this was for for so many of them the first time they had ever seen this level of interest or acknowledgement in what they experienced at, at residential schools they also felt safe to start sharing some of their experiences and so i remember on facebook around that time you know just reading my timeline and kind of bracing myself and and wondering what i was going to read because so many survivors were coming forward and so when my brother shared that post and it was about our dad you know it just really felt like um you, you know, I just, I, I can't even find words to describe how I felt when I read it. It was just awful. It was just so horrifying because I had never, I had never contemplated what my dad's experience was in residential school. I didn't know anything about his experience when I read that post. I, I didn't, I knew he had gone to a residential school, but I didn't even know where he went or for how long. And knowing that he was abused there was devastating, but also then I immediately thought about my experiences with him and, mm-hmm. and my experiences with him when I was a kid. And, and I think like so many other residential school survivors, he really struggled a lot. But I didn't yeah. see it as him struggling. You know, when you're a little kid and you're witnessing violence at home and you're witnessing somebody being angry and, and right. intense, I was just afraid. And this is, you know, for me to learn now mm-hmm. in my 40s that you know, the root of some of that was, was really jarring and, and has made me question a lot of things about our, about my life and about our relationship. Yeah. I mean, she said your dad was in the RCMP and when you were a child, he was an alcoholic and abusive and that was your experience of him. Mm-hmm. But you, you and your mother left when you were what, seven years old? Yeah, I was seven years old. Um, and, and that was when they split up. Um, and then I didn't see my dad for a long time, like for years until mm-hmm. I was a teenager. Um, and, and I don't, I don't actually remember like how I felt like when we left necessarily, but I, I feel like looking back, I must have felt relieved because, you know, it was such Mm -hmm. a stressful, um, life at home with him drinking and being so violent and abusive and, and, and it has impacted me, you know, having those experiences and witnessing that violence at home, Mm -hmm. um, has had a huge impact on me. And so, so this felt like kind of a way to understand a little bit more. Yeah. And I think what actually what it, what it really was is like was kind of a chance for me to have empathy for my dad in a way that I hadn't yeah. before. Right. Like I had yeah. I just had these memories of him and these bad experiences of, of him from my childhood. And this was the first time time where I could kind of see where that maybe came from in him and think of the boy that he was when he went to a residential school and think of the boy that was abused by this priest and and imagine yeah. that little kid like he was a little kid in the same way that I was a little kid and and I really I think it's really changed the way I think about my dad yeah and we should say your, your dad passed away as a relatively young man at 58 mm-hmm. so I mean you, you haven't had the personal connection or chance to to address this directly with him um, can you, I mean, he, so he was at St. Michael's Residential School in Saskatchewan. Can you, can you tell us a bit about that place and where your family fits into that story? 
Yeah, I think that St. Michael's has, has obviously, uh, what I've been learning is that it's obviously had a huge impact on my family. But, I, you know, I remember, you know, even when I going back home as going back to Beardy's as a teenager and driving by it, you know, like, I mean, um, it was such, it's this huge red brick building, um, this extremely large, like residential school right next to a really tiny town of Duck Lake and next to the reserve mm. of Beardy's and Okamasis. And so, you know, it was, it's always ever present, but I, I think that, you know, because I never went and because, um, you know, I, I didn't really understand the impacts of that school, but my dad was one of 15 kids in his family and they all went to St. Michael's and most of them went when they were six years old and, and they were native Cree speakers at home. And so, you know, because my dad passed away, I've had to learn about his experience by talking to my aunties and uncles, his brothers and sisters, and hearing and interviewing them about their experiences has kind of given me a bit of a window into what my dad would have experienced. So they all spoke Cree at home and they were taken to residential school at six years old. Um, and, and everyone we've talked to who is, you know, went through that describes a really similar experience of like, being taken in and having your hair cut and being taken to the showers and being punished for speaking your language, not, you know, not understanding any English and then being kind of indoctrinated into this really rigid life of Christianity, of, of Catholicism specifically, and being made to pray and not even, you know, understanding what, what, what you're praying to or for necessarily, but, um, but it sounds like a really, like it was a really incredibly harsh experience for everyone in my family to be separated from, uh, their parents and their grandparents and aunts and uncles, and then made to live in this school where not only was there, you know, and I, it was really important for me actually, cause in, in talking to my aunts and uncles, like one of the things that they all talked about that it, with such resonance was the loneliness and like the, the fear and loneliness you would feel as a child, um, sleeping in a big dorm like that with priests and nuns wearing, you know, mm -hmm. habits and, and robes and, and, and saying things to them like, uh, Chien Sauvage, you know, like that's what the, the nuns called the kids and like savage dogs yeah, and, yeah. and just having like that, that alone, I wanted to make sure because it, they all talked about that, you know, that, and, and they talked about being hungry and not having enough food and not being able to talk to your brothers and sisters because it was considered sinful to like associate with, with, you know, your people of the opposite sex in this residential school. Um, and then on top of that, like some of them experiencing the kind of abuse that my dad went through, which is just, you know, I think, I think that it, it's, St. Michael's and the impact of St. Michael's, like I'm still connecting the dots back to my family, but everything I've learned has just, you know, again, just made me want to know more. And, and as a journalist, it's made me want to be, you know, want to hold somebody to account, to, to, to yeah. ask the, the questions about like, we, we've had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in this country um, about residential schools meant to kind of shine the spotlight on what children mm -hmm. experience there. Um, but how many of the abusers, the, the people who committed crimes against children have been charged from those schools? 
Very, yeah. very few. And why is that? And who are they? And why don't we know their names? Yeah. And what, what are their legacies? And how have they been able yeah. to live out their lives without um, any of the impacts where so many survivors have, have, have struggled their entire lives or, or been made to? Um, those are real. I mean, those are really good questions, too. And I, so I'm, I spent six years reporting out of Africa and spent a lot of time in South Africa. And I think like a lot of people followed the Truth and Reconciliation Commission there. And what struck me there was that it wasn't just the survivors or the victim stories you were hearing. There were also the perpetrators who were up on giving very, being held to account, giving their version of their stories. They were compelled to be there or they were given amnesty to be there. But in the TRC here in Canada, there is none of that, like almost none of that. And it even struck me, and you mentioned Kamloops and, and the discoveries of the graves last year, last summer. I felt even then there was very little accountability. It was all about who the victims were, who the mm -hmm. survivors, no, in, this case, in that case, not survivors. But, and why? I mean, what? Exactly. Why is Why? that difference? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I have those questions too. I mean, as soon as I heard the story about my dad being abused, I, I thought of him. I thought of the boy he was. But then I thought about the priest. Who was that man? Yeah. Who was he? How yeah. long was he at that residential school? Was my dad the only chi like child he abused? Where did he go after the school? Did he ever face any kind of criminal charges? Did he work at other residential schools? Did he go on to work in other indigenous communities? Like, I mm -hmm. have so many questions about the priests and nuns who have been accused of abuse in that school and, and what happened to them in their lives. And also, you know, I think part of, part of what this has been is been trying to kind of correct the record right that you know if you mm -hmm. think about uh, we have now a better understanding of what children went through in residential school but for so long that history was written by um the people in power the people who are now accused yeah. of abusing the kids and i guess that's a story that we're all familiar with but but i, I think that it's part of like a, a bigger story in canada about the indigenous perspective and like where has the indigenous perspective, um, where have our histories been reflected or, and how have they been reflected? And is it actually true? Is it true to our experience? Is it true to the truth? And, and I feel like, you know, examining and trying to find out as much as we can about the priests and the nuns and the staff members who worked at the school is like part of my desire to want to correct the record. Yeah, and it strikes me, I mean, your father beating up that priest on the side of the road, that's effectively vigilante justice, and that's the kind of justice you get when there is no actual justice. And that's not the only, there was another instance, too, in this series. Where There's th there are three instances that we, like, you know, in talking to survivors, you know, my father um, beating up this priest on the side of the road and expecting to get in trouble, but the priest never made a complaint, nothing happened, mm -hmm. and it became a story that he told, um, but then we heard from Eugene Arcan, who's another survivor from St. Michael's, who also, um, you know, confronted a priest who he believed to be abusive um, at, at a TRC event. You know, they, so they did take part in these TRC events, but I could think that, they, you know, they came after the settlement was, was announced with apologies and, and sometimes apologies. There, you know, we actually found um, video of... of 
some of the Oblates of, of Mary Immaculate, and they ran, they're a Catholic order of priests, and they ran 48 residential schools across the country. They did have mm-hmm. uh, a meeting with the commissioners of the TRC and used it to largely defend their position and say, it's not nice for people to be criticizing us after we've done all this great work in residential schools, and where's our apology? Like, wh- like that was actually a question that was asked by, by a, a priest at, at this uh, TRC event. Um, and, and I, I think, yeah, Eugene, um, you know, confronting Father Gauthier um, and mm-hmm. holding him over a balcony. Um, and, then, and then we spoke actually to another residential school survivor who said that he had done the same thing, that he had, uh, what, he said that there was a brother um, from residential school um, that he owed. And he said, actually, he owed me. And he... He, he beat him up on his last day of residential school. And I think that y- you're right, you know, when you think about how um, there has been, you know, no opportunity for them to get justice in any other way. Even the residential school settlement, which was meant to be this, this chance for survivors to be compensated for their experiences and to share their stories. And through the IAP process, you know, all of the survivors who experienced abuse could go through this process and they could get money for the abuse they suffered. But they had to also um, be believed. And, and, and through that process, they had to testify in really graphic detail about the abuse that they experienced at the mm-hmm. schools. And they also had to name these, these alleged abusers, right? And the government hired private investigators to track these people down, um, you know, to invite them to participate in these hearings, you know, and none of that ever resulted in any kind of criminal charges, even though they have a list of, you know, thousands of people who have been credibly accused of abuse through the IAP. And, and that's it. Like, we're not allowed to see, it's not public at all. We don't know who they are. We don't know. uh, That's never been made public. It's the onus is on, you know, the oblates to decide if they want to release that. And, and, you know, when we contacted them about this priest that we have heard has been abusive at St. Michael's, um, in my first email to the Oblates, um, you know, I asked questions about this priest, Father Gauthier, and mm-hmm. um, they wrote back and said that our email was the first time that they'd heard allegations against this priest. Um, and, and this is, you know, 2022, you know, this is like yeah. almost 20 years after thousands of survivors have come forward yeah. and filed lawsuits. And, and then after... Uh, 26,000 survivors went through the IAP process, you know, that, that right. um, there's so much that is sitting there waiting to be uncovered that has been documented that I feel like it's kind of shameful that it's 2022 and I'm only now just learning about St. Michael's and what happened there and what my dad went through. Mm-hmm. And the Opalites, am, am I right in that there's been sort of a struggle to get records from them as well? Have they yeah, there. I think that like the work of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, um, you know, they've been trying to access documents uh, relating to the residential schools, and and I think just in general, even the TRC, while it was you know while it was underway, was struggling to get documents from um, the churches, but also from the government as well. And now I think the Oblates have have made a commitment in the, you know, since Kamloops, since the discovery was made, and that was an Oblate-run residential school as well, Mm -hmm. um, to to open up their records and to, um, 
you know, they're working, they're still negotiating this agreement with the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation um, to to get access to to their documents. But we went like they they um, years ago had actually given their records from um, a specific area in Alberta and Saskatchewan to the provincial archives of Alberta, uh, and they now house the records. So we went and we actually, you know, there, there are hundreds of thousands of documents um, that they have given over, and a lot of them relating mm-hmm. to St. Michael's. But there's still things that we're not allowed to see in those records, like the personnel, personnel files for individual priests, which um, they say for privacy reasons will be you know, kept private until 50 years after their death. And we don't obviously know what's in them. But, you know, I'm curious to know if they if there's ever been any documentation of the abuse that survivors have told us over and over again was happening in these schools, because none of it is in the archives that we saw, you know, it's like, it's all written from the oblates perspective, they kept, you know, really, really detailed, not not necessarily daily diaries, but they have these codexes. So they write down Today, Father Gauthier took a trip to the shrine, and then yesterday, Father mm-hmm. Campania siphoned the wine out of these uh, all the leftover barrels, and then he fell off a ladder, and then today we had a cake, and we had another visitor. It's like they're, they're you know, seemingly happy life in residential school has been really well documented, but, but yeah. there's so much that obviously has not, that we're not, we haven't seen right. in these documents that, that I'm... I'm really curious about. So you mentioned the government hired private investigators and they tracked down all these various people and there's, you know, very serious allegations, sexual, physical abuse against children, against Crimes against children. And crimes against children, like the worst kind of crimes, really. And based on your reporting, wh- why are we not acting on these as a country? I mean, well, the IAP process was not, is not a criminal process. Like it wasn't designed as a criminal process, I guess. You know, I think, I think it's so important to understand the context that this even happened in, right? Like, so, so these schools were open for over a hundred years and they were funded by the federal government and given to the churches to, to run and to operate. Um, and then in the nineties, when these stories started coming forward, like survivors started speaking out about the abuse and filing lawsuits, um, you know, you read some of these statements of claim and, and, and we found one from St. Michael's where someone alleges that they were abused, um, by an oblate priest and that, that, that the oblates and the administrators and people in the school should have known this was happening and should have done more to protect this student. And in the statement of defense that's filed by the Oblates, they say, we deny these allegations and we deny that we were responsible for the care of this student and any child in this school. And we deny that this priest was employed by us. And we deny that we have any responsibility here. And even if what this student is saying, the survivor is saying is true, it's actually the responsibility of the federal government. And then this federal government statement of defense reads, um, we were not responsible for the running of this school. That was the Oblates. And and this happened to, you know, when you file this this lawsuit, you file this statement of claim, you make these allegations, they're given a chance to respond. And this can go back and forth. And for many survivors, it went back and forth for years. And lots of these lawsuits never even made it to, to trial. But when they did, um, survivors started winning and they were being awarded large settlements. And the churches were getting worried. The Oblates gave an interview to the Globe and Mail in the 1990s saying that they were facing possible bankruptcy and they were worried about if they were going to have money to take care of the aging priests in their 
in their order. And and they started pressuring the government to reach a settlement, asking the government, they asked the government at that point to basically take on their legal liability um, because uh, they they knew they were facing, I think they said 900 claims in Saskatchewan alone. But like I said, they ran 48 of Canada's residential schools. And then um, and then this all of this, you know, the, the, the government also like reached this settlement agreement. And so as part of this settlement, you know, uh, I think it's it was about acknowledging the harm and there was an apology made in the House of Commons. But it was also about limiting liability. Right. The the uh, we spoke to a lawyer who said that the residential school settlement was the biggest gift that could have been given to the Catholic Church because basically, if once survivors uh, accepted this settlement from the government, it, they gave up their right to sue again, and and I think that you know the context is really important in understanding basically why we are where we are now, where you know there have been so few criminal charges or not even charges or convictions there have been so few investigations into mm-hmm. the crimes that were committed um beyond the crime of genocide which which is was the finding of of cultural genocide was the finding of the truth and reconciliation commission sorry david i feel uh, like I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm just yeah i'm, I'm like this is obviously no, we've spent no, months no. like immersed in this story and and it's and it's it's, you know, it's very, it's been tricky for me because I'm a journalist and an investigative journalist and I'm working with my team, my amazing team, who is helping mm-hmm. to, to work on this story. But this is so personal for me, you know, as because this is a school um, where my father was abused and he went to and because all of my aunts and uncles went there and because my life has, this has also helped me realize how my life has been impacted by the legacy of the school and by the priests who we're abusing the children there. Like this is, this is a really, um, this has been mm-hmm. a difficult story to report for all those reasons. I can only imagine. I mean, I, I mean, reporting on difficult stories is hard anyway, but this must just affect you on a cellular level almost, right? I mean, it's gotta be so hard. It is, but it, I feel like it's also, it also, it, I, I feel like it was hard when I just had the information and I knew that my dad was abused before I thought about attaching this kind of structure of investigative journalism to it, you know, and, and deciding like, actually, I'm not go- like, I tried to look away for a while. I was like, this is such painful, like, information, just a, just devastating to learn that my dad was sexually abused at a residential school by a priest. Um, I really did you know, try to turn away. And then I realized I can't ignore it. It's, it's right there in front of me and I have tools. I can, I can, I do, this is what I do. I can like look into the school. I can shine the biggest spotlight on it. And, and I think really like what this has been for me is like the continuation of, of what I've been learning about trauma uh, through the work that I've been doing over the last several years. So I've been focused on reporting on Indigenous issues, but most mostly reporting on violence against Indigenous women and girls. And for me, that has been professionally and personally really like an education into the impacts of trauma. And, and I actually, I went to at Columbia University, there's the DART Center for Trauma and Journalism, and they have a fellowship. And mm. I did that a couple of years ago. And learning about the science of trauma was so um, jarring. I mean, it was incredible. But it, but as somebody who's been impacted by trauma, it was also you know difficult in some ways to learn about the impacts and realize how 
you know, I'm not the only person in my family, clearly, who's been impacted by trauma. It's, it's not everybody, it's most of us. Um, and, and one of the, one of the things I learned that was so helpful was, was actually one of the ways that's been proven to help people heal from trauma. And, and one of the ways is actually to talk about it. You, you know, you spend your life trying mm-hmm. to avoid the, the triggers that kind of bring up the trauma for you, but they're really difficult. You know, it, it doesn't stay hidden. It keeps popping up. And one of the ways to heal is to actually talk about it and to expose it. And it actually, the more you do it, and if you talk about it in a, in a, in a way that where you were given agency and you were empowered and, and you were safe, it actually changes your body's reaction to that trauma. And I feel like mm-hmm. in a way, that's what this podcast is for me is like really shining this, the biggest spotlight I can and trying to mm-hmm. understand as much as I can as a way to really kind of make sense of, of my, my experiences and my, my family's experiences. Mm-hmm. And how important is justice in that equation? I feel like it's very important. I feel like it's, it's, it's the, it's, I feel such a sense of urgency around trying to seek some kind of accountability because it feels like the window for accountability is closing. You know, my father passed away in 2013 um, and two of his brothers, um, one of them who I interviewed for the podcast have passed away in the last year. Like, like survivors mm-hmm. are, we're losing survivors uh, and we're losing their stories and we're losing this window for them to get, to get justice, to seek accountability for what they endured. And the other part of that is that the perpetrators, the alleged perpetrators, the alleged abusers at these schools uh, who committed these crimes against children, they're also dying. Like there's only a handful of people who worked at St. Michael's um, who are still alive. Um, and, and it's, again, like it really, f- for me, is such a motivator to, w- when I think about the fact that it's 2022 and I'm 43 years old and I'm just now learning the truth about St. Michael's and shining the spotlight and, see, and, and that a lot of these people have never been held publicly accountable, have never even been publicly questioned about some of the things that happened in residential schools, and that this work needs to happen now. We need to be doing this right now. We need to, to be asking these hard questions. We need to, to not only remember the survivors and what they went through, but also understand the, tr- the bigger picture and the truth about what has happened. I want to talk a bit more about your father because, I mean, there's a lot that's very, very difficult to listen to in this podcast. It's very important but difficult. But there's also, I mean, this kind of a lovely narrative about you discovering who your father became, yeah. which I felt was, I mean, really heartwarming. I just wanted to talk a bit about what you learned about your father as you work through this. Yeah, I feel like that's, again, like speaks to to like how this has been you know, actually like a difficult process for me personally, but also just like, I'm so grateful in, in so many ways. You know, I, I I had this relationship with my dad where I didn't see him very often and I felt like it was an arm's length, even as an adult, even though, you know, when I came back as a teenager, I could see that things had changed for him, that he was a different person. He had um, a new wife and, and, and a new family and he was sober and he seemed to be a different person. And I could see all of that, but I think that my experiences and my memories of him from when I was a kid really 
affected my desire to to want to reconnect with him or get closer mm-hmm. to him. And what has, what has happened with the podcast and, and because I'm not, he's not here and I can't talk to him directly, I've been reaching out to his brothers and sisters and people who are close to him, his wife and my brothers and sisters and getting to know the man that, that they knew because for all of them, he went on beyond my childhood, you know, and I've gotten to get a, a window into what his life became. And my dad, um, I'm just so grateful to have gotten this insight into him. You know, he struggled, obviously, when I was a kid, but then he eventually um, started healing and he started reconnecting mm-hmm. with the the culture and the spirituality that was taken away in residential school. And he transformed his life and he became a cultural leader in the community. And he, the, one of the best things about doing this podcast, honestly, is like so many people have been reaching out to me because they know my dad and they have this relationship with my dad and they know the man that he became and they want to share it with me and they want to tell me about their memories mm-hmm. of him. And it's been so, just so honestly, like it's so beautiful to get to feel like I'm getting to know him a little bit through their conversations and their memories and then the other side of that is that it's just so bittersweet because I didn't get to know that part of him I didn't I, you know that I missed out on that and and I feel regret about that and um it's it's really yeah it's it's hard it's hard yeah well what's your family's reaction been to the podcast my family has been honestly like just so generous and supportive and uh, like I really am in awe of, of all of them, everyone who has shared with me. Um, not, and I have been right from the moment, like, you know, even just going to like, going to say, I want to do this story about my dad and could I interview you and, you know, and, and. And immediately, and it's about sexual abuse of children too. It's ex- a, exactly, not an easy story yeah, to tell. Yeah. yeah, and and from the get go, everyone has been just so extremely generous with with their stories. But also, um, I think that like me and my dad's story, like it's special and it's unique in some ways. But it actually is so common. It's every single survivor's story if if they're you know if we're lucky that that's the, you know that what i'm realizing is that his his family and his brothers and sisters had the same experiences right that they were all mm-hmm. shaped and impacted by their time at that residential school and i'm hearing also from so many of my first cousins so my my aunts and uncles kids being like that was my experience too that we have these shared experiences because of this because our our parents went to this residential school um and and i think that there is i think a desire on their part to want to share the truth and share their stories and share what they have been through um and for for us as their children there's this also this desire that we have to understand our parents that we love so much and and to want to understand like how they were impacted and why they were the parents they were to us um and i think you know it's it's not easy for anybody i think even i'm trying to talk to you know everybody as much as i can it's it's hard it's a hard thing i think for us all to be confronting this painful truth but i also feel like it's a responsibility i feel a responsibility 
to to learn it and to know it and and to help share it because my family has shared it with me and because they have been so generous like my auntie cookie um I didn't get to see her when I was in Saskatchewan, the first reporting trip. And, and she called and she said, I want to talk to you. I want to tell you about my experience at St. Michael's. You're doing the story about your dad. I want, I want to be interviewed. Mm. And I said, I, we could talk on the phone now. We could do this, what we're doing right now. And she said, mm. oh, no, I want to talk to you in person. I'll, like, next time you're home, mm. let's, let's do this in person. I said, absolutely, for sure. And then, like, um, then, then not that long after... Um, Jean Chrétien was in the news, former prime minister and former minister of Indian affairs was in the news mm-hmm. uh, around his comments about residential schools and, and, and the way that he also seemed to compare it to his experiences at a boarding school. And my auntie Cookie, who's 75, she saw that news. She saw him on TV um, talking about that. And she was so upset. She called me and she said, this happened to me. I know this happened to me. This was real. People need to know that this was real. Like I lived it. People need to know. And, and we had this, like, like she shared so much with me on that day. And, and I feel like that urgency is, is what I feel like people need to know. People need to know that this happened to my dad. This happened to my uncle Harris. This happened to my uncle Bill. This happened to my uncle George. This happened to my uncle Ernie, my auntie Cookie, my auntie Margaret. Like we are one family of, of hundreds of thousands of indigenous families across this country who were still living this. This is not just because you see the black and white images from, you know, a hundred years ago, you think this is ancient history, but it's not. This is something that we're still living today. And I always remember like being at an event with um, Senator Sinclair, who um, this is before he was a senator, it was Justice Sinclair, who was one of the chief commissioners of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And he was asked about, you know, I feel like there's been this like, ask this question put to survivors about why can't you just get over it? Like residential schools, like why can't you get over it? You know, that's something I feel like that is still coming up. Maybe it's it, it's worded slightly differently today, maybe, maybe not. I feel like there's still a lot of opportunity out there for people to diminish or deny um, mm-hmm. what happened in residential schools and what survivors have lived through. But he said, when people ask me that, when people say that, I say, we don't ask Holocaust survivors to forget the Holocaust, to get over the Holocaust. We don't ask World War veterans to get over their sacrifices in in these wars. Like, why is it so hard for us to remember this truth, this history? And I think that question is so important, especially when we're talking about like the systemic racism that that allowed residential schools to continue for as long as they did and and allowed into the 90s right yeah like, into 1997 yeah. and and but also has allowed it, that history to be suppressed and and misunderstood and ignored and just you know pushed aside um until last year when Kamloops the news from Kamloops happened or who like the the stereotypes and the racism that still exists that allow people to to you know, be labeled as impatient when they're hitting people with their vehicles who are, who are, you know, going on a walk to honor residential school survivors or writing Mm -hmm. op-eds in newspapers about how things weren't that bad or, or, you know, I feel like those are things we're still dealing with. I think there's a, there's an, 
inherent wish in Canada to believe in our goodness. And we we really wrapped ourselves up in how, what a good nation we are and okay. what nice people we are. It's such and good I think PR. Th- it's like, where does that I'm, come <laughs> No, I know. But this flies so thoroughly in the face of that. I think that's got to be part of the issue. Yeah. Right? Like, we need to confront this properly. We need to really properly deal with it. The other part of it is that... I I believe people should know the truth and people have an obligation and a responsibility. But I also feel like our podcast, you know, I don't want it to feel like an obligation for people to listen. Like I want people to be interested and engaged and that we're we're telling a compelling story that is hopefully not feeling like an obligation for listeners to like Mm -hmm. to want to hear. No, no, it's an incredibly engaging piece of storytelling and powerful as well. And I think the fact that it's such a personal story for you just makes that impact so much stronger. So I, just, I want to say thank you, because uh, I mean, I thank you for taking the time today. And thank you for the podcast. It's a, a really incredible piece of work. So can you tell us the name and where people can find it? Sure, it's called Stolen Surviving St. Michael's. And it's exclusively available on Spotify, but free for anyone to to listen there. Fantastic. Well, Connie, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. There is a hotline for survivors of residential schools and their family members available 24 hours a day for anyone experiencing pain or distress as a result of residential school experiences. The number to call is 1-800-721-0066. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoy this podcast, please like and review us where you listen. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Until next time, when we explore again. I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We have Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of York boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means that Indian oral history is very strong. Every little over every inch of the country that it could be, we're hoping that he would fire at it. Oh, I guess 160.